Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Wilson Jeremiah Moses about his study of the life and thought of America's third president, entitled Thomas Jefferson, a modern Prometheus. Wilson, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, uh, there's not much, too much to say. I'm pretty typical American academic, uh, except that I went to uh, Catholic school as a, as a kid for eight years uh, in Detroit, Michigan. And after that, I went to Wayne State University back during the day when you could go to college without taking out a student loan. And I got most of my education um, either either in, um, and of course, I came, from, I came from a family that did a lot of reading. We were um, sort of... Um, well, I think it was an intellectual family, but not, but not, but, but very poor. And so I had the advantage of a, of a good literary background. But when it came to things like politics or involvement in labor unions or business and that sort of thing, I was, I was somewhat disadvantaged when I started the college. And I graduated um, uh, in uh, 1965, and I, I uh, went towards a, a, a PhD in English. Uh, for a while, but then I transferred out of English into American studies. I went to Brown University, thanks to affirmative action, and uh, I completed my work there uh, around the time that the United States was going through its uh, centennial, in 1975, actually. And I've taught at a few universities around the country since then. I was saying that that uh, broad background of reading that you described must have been very helpful for this book, because one of the things that uh, I, I noticed, I couldn't help but notice when I was reading, it, is just how wide-ranging it is of a study of Thomas Jefferson's thought. What was it that led you to uh, write a book like this? I, I, uh, I was, I was interested in the, I'm interested in the fact that people are constantly invoking the uh, founders of the republic, uh, as if we could look at people who lived in. Uh, the period from 1776 to 1789, and find a great deal of guidance for the present day. And I think that's um, that's a somewhat misguided idea, because after all, those people lived before the developments in modern communication and modern transportation, which are so important to us, and they had no concept whatever of what uh, modern finance and modern economics would be about. Jefferson said something that I really found quite interesting. He felt that the Constitution would only be good for about 19 years. That's incident. That gives you some idea of his intellect, because uh, 19 years, I think, is the cycle that it takes for the moon to return to its position in the sky. And uh, Jefferson thought 19 years was about as good as the Constitution was good for. Uh, but I think that his idea of having a constitutional convention every 19 years would have been impractical. Still, he, uh, I, think, I don't think that he was a person who had a, 
a reverence. And he quite ironically once referred to the drafters of the Constitution as a group of demigods. I don't think he really believed that. So uh, you, at the beginning of your book, and this is reflected in the subtitle, you refer to Jefferson as a modern Prometheus. I was wondering if we could begin by unpacking what you meant, what you mean by that, and and how it was that Jefferson, you know, fits within that idea of the Greek myth. Well, uh, Prometheus was a type in Greek mythology. That is a a figure who was very similar to the gods, but usually not included in the pantheon of the gods. He was a titan, and he. Uh, was known, depending on which of the Greek mythographers you read, he was known as the person who either stole fire from heaven and gave it to mankind, or he was the creator of mankind. The Greeks, after all, developed the myth of Prometheus, and they developed the mythology over a long period of time. And we, for the, the earliest records we see of, of Greek mythology are about 800 years before Christ, and the more recent ones come about 400. So 400 years is a long time to develop the concept of any of any of one of those Greek gods. But Prometheus is seen sometimes as the benefactor of mankind, and sometimes simply as a trickster. Uh, what's also interesting about Prometheus, of course, is that some people associate him with Satan, who gave mankind the knowledge of good and evil. But as a bearer of fire and light, Prometheus was the one who ignited the revolution with his words about um, all men being created equal and endowed by their creator with certain uh, inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where he got those words is, is, kind, of, is kind of questionable, but those are the words for which he's known. And those are the words for which he is celebrated, and they are constantly invoked uh, both by people like uh, Abraham Lincoln and by uh, people today. Also, however, we see that his words are invoked by many revolutions, many revolutionaries, whether these are people who are revolting against uh, their own government or who are revolting against colonial rule. But they're very popular words, and they have indeed inspired a lot of people. So whatever you want to say about Jefferson as a philosopher, we have to, we have to uh, uh, acknowledge that he was terribly influential with those, um, with those very few well-chosen words. Not entirely of his own invention, but nonetheless, uh, those are the words for which he is known. So he ignited the fires of revolution. He was therefore a kind of Prometheus, but he also was a Prometheus in the way that all American presidents are Prometheus, are Prometheus, that is, he was a trickster. You can't be any sort of politician without being something of a trickster. You've got to be somewhat slick, and you have to have qualities of leadership. And there has been no president who hasn't been a genius at leadership. That includes the present president. Whatever you may think of the kind of leadership that they, that they offer, the fact is that they're all geniuses at leadership, regardless of how stupid they may be in other respects. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that any of the presidents have ever been stupid, although I do think that some, very few, have been uh, quite as uh, scholarly, uh, quite as intellectual as, as Jefferson. It, that question of a president's intellect is something that you uh, address later in the book, and I'm hoping that we might be able to get to that. But one of the things that you uh, do with this examination of Prometheus is you take it and you show how that perception of it has changed over time, basically 
how Jefferson's historical image has been uh, adopted and, and, and interpreted by various uh, political and uh, historical uh, uh, thinkers in the centuries since. How has this this notion of, of Jefferson changed, and in what ways has it been adapted? Well, I I, I forgot to mention one thing. That is, that I stole the, the title of the book from Mary Shelley. Most people remember Mary Shelley uh, for writing Frankenstein. In my day, she was known as the wife of, of Percy Bysshe Shelley, and uh, but but the but the subtitle, A Modern Prometheus, I did get from her. Jefferson was a kind of Frankenstein monster then, to get to your question. He was a kind of Frankenstein monster uh, to, to someone like Teddy Roosevelt, because he felt that, uh, that, like Frankenstein, he had created a monster. The monster being this idea of the hostility to central government that is so, that is so present in American life. That is, most Americans are, are very suspicious of the central government, regardless of whether they're the, on the right end or the left end of, a, of the political spectrum. Most Americans are, are suspicious of the press. Most Americans are suspicious of the government in Washington. And most Americans feel that Washington is, um, is a den of thieves. And I think that Jefferson is the, is the progenitor of that, of that kind of thinking. Nonetheless, he was a president, and as president, he uh, he he embodied this um, this American quality of of the trickster. That is the person of as as Abraham looked looked said it. Uh, you know, you can fool some of the people all the time, and he was very good at doing that. As and I think every um, every president has certainly been good at feeling some of the people all the time, and um, all of the people some of the time. So I so I think that um, Jefferson has had that reputation. Now, there was a school, there was a whole tradition of American historians who did not like Jefferson. And Abraham Lincoln was one of them. But uh, it was necessary to always to pay a tribute to Jefferson because Jefferson uh, did articulate some ideas that, were, that have been popular to people of all political persuasions. Some people will, will take certain ideas of Jefferson out of their toolbox and emphasize those, and other people will select other tools, uh, Jeffersonian tools, out of the toolbox. Uh, but a, pers- a person like a person like um, Lincoln was going to put a lot of emphasis on this idea that all men are created equal. Although Lincoln understood that Jefferson did not mean anything like what Lincoln meant with that phrase. In fact, when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. He was making a protest against the Dred Scott decision because the Dred Scott decision had made it very clear that Jefferson did not mean all men are created equal. He didn't mean by any means to imply that that the African-American population was equal to the white. And and, uh, Justice Taney was correct in saying that. Lincoln just simply said, well, now, the, the, uh, the Supreme Court Justice, Taney, has spoken. Now let him enforce it because I've got the Army of the Potomac, and I'll tell you what, the, what, what Jefferson meant. And so it was, it, was very, it, was very, it was very interesting because he turned, um, he turned the, um, the ideas of, of the Jacksonians, he turned them, them t- completely around and used them against the, the last surviving of the Jacksonians, who was, of course, Justice Taney. Uh, and... Um, 
and so Lincoln, so Lincoln, I think, was one of those important interpreters of um, of um, of Jefferson. Now, when uh, when George Bancroft is called the uh, the father of American history, he just bought that Jeffersonian. He just bought that Lincoln line, hook, line, and sinker, and saw Jefferson as this great abolitionist. Of course, Jefferson was nothing of the sort. Jefferson was in favor of the abolition of the slave trade. He was in favor of the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade. And in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, there was a very lengthy passage in which he condemned the Atlantic slave trade and condemned King George. For, and he blamed the Atlantic slave trade on King George. But Jefferson actually had married a slave trader's daughter. One of the reasons why he was in debt his entire adult life is that when he married his wife, Martha, she he brought he brought with her this debt, which he inherited from his father-in-law from a very tragic venture in the Atlantic slave trade. And when that ship sank, or when I'm sorry, when those slaves were lost in that in the slave trade, that was the basic of basis of the Jeffersonian debt, which hounded him for the rest of his life. So while he was blaming King George for the slave trade, he had actually married into it. And that is one of the important ironies about Jefferson. And many people felt that Jefferson, when he made this long statement, this long pronunciation against the Atlantic slave trade, some people felt it was hypocritical. But other people felt that, that it was self-interested. Because as James Madison pointed out in the Constitutional Convention, we, we Virginians are very heavily invested in the abolition of the slave trade. Of course, we Virginians want to see the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade uh, abolished. Why? Because all of our wealth is tied up in slavery. Therefore, the law of supply and demand commands us to be opposed to the Atlantic slave trade. By opposing the slave trade, the international slave trade, we maintain the price of our, of our slaves. We are involved in the domestic slave trade, but not in the Atlantic slave trade. But the people from Georgia and Virginia needed slave labor. And so they, they wanted to have that section removed from the, from, the, from, the from the declaration because they wanted low slave prices. And this is something that naive readers of Marx, of people who misunderstand or who, mis or who misinterpret Marx, fail to grasp. Marx understood that not all capitalists have the same interests. Some capitalists were in favor of a high slave price, and some capitalists were in favor of a low slave price. We see the same thing today when some people are in favor, when some capitalists are in favor of high interest rates, and some capitalists are in favor of low interest rates. Capitalists do not always have the same interests. And that, is, and that is one of the things we have seen continually throughout American history, and one of the things that complicates our congressional politics right down to the present day. But Jefferson's attitude towards slavery then was one of abolishing the international slave trade because, as Madison pointed out, Virginians were self-interested in having a high price of slaves. Now that led to his position on banking. He was always opposed to banking and to bankers because he was opposed to that variety of finance. His variety, his monetary system was based on promissory notes. People pro wrote promissory notes based on their credit. 
but they had to have collateral in order to write the promissory note. The collateral for a Jeffersonian would be their property in land and slaves. Hamilton and Washington, on the other hand, George Washington was a vastly more sophisticated businessman than Jefferson was. And Hamilton and Jefferson and Hamilton, um, sorry, Washington and Hamilton wanted a, na a modern national banking system and a modern national system of finance. And this was and this was the source of the conflict between Jefferson and Washington in the early republic. I, I think what you uh, to go back to an earlier point. It, it, one of the things that you described points to one of the challenges, I think, in terms of uh, approaching Jefferson, which is that his thought is so rich and, and it addresses so many topics that you really have to uh, you know, consider it all in, in terms of understanding him. And it's fascinating how you know, people have been able to exploit that to pick and choose those parts of Jefferson, which are part of who he is, to yeah, support them. Right. So. Right. I was wondering if we could then perhaps uh, start to delve a bit more deeply into specific areas of this thought. I'd like to start with your, uh, where your, your examination of Jefferson's ideas about labor and in both in terms of industry and the industrial sector, and then also in terms of agriculture as well, because it, it's very, it's a very complicated one that, that in which slavery plays this, you know, obviously indispensable role in terms of how he thinks about labor. But also, it, it reflects a lot of his ideas about you know economics in general and and you know the presence of industry in America. Yes, well, uh, when I was um, I started as an English major, and when when I got to graduate school, that was when I first began um, to 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 start thinking very seriously about Thomas Jefferson. And of course, uh, I learned his very famous phrase, "Let our workshops remain in Europe." Well, I took that very seriously. Until uh, until around the time I started working on this book, and I happened to be uh, at a at a cocktail party, and I was talking to to a really bright colleague from the business school who was convinced that that Jefferson was the father of American industry, and then I realized that the way they were teaching Jefferson in the business school was very different than the way they were teaching him in the American Studies department, because in the American Studies department we were always looking at Jefferson as the as the um, as the man who said, "Let our workshops remain in Europe, uh, because uh, because we ought to be a an agrarian empire. We ought to be an agricultural empire." Uh, agrarian was a term that Jefferson very seldom used, and he used it in a very different sense than we use it today. But uh, but what I what I learned then, as I studied more of Jefferson, is that. In his, in his earlier writings, for example, in his summary view of the rights of British North America, Jefferson was very much concerned with American industry, and that was one of his reasons for, um, for, for opposition. One of, one of his ultimate reasons for withdrawing from the empire was that the British were undermining the development of American industry. Now, during the, during the War of 1812, of course, when, we, when the United States was cut off from British industry, that was a period that saw the development, the internal growth of American industry, and Jefferson, and Jefferson was often quite, quite put out with people who would remind him of his idea, let our workshops remain in Europe, because he was consistently in favor of American industry, and in fact, he, tried to, he made some attempts at industrialism right there at Monticello. He was never as successful an industrialist as George Washington was. 
for, for a number of reasons, which I won't go into right now. But he didn't, he really didn't have the head for business that Washington had. Jefferson died a very wealthy man, and Jefferson died um, just one footstep ahead of his creditors and left his daughter destitute. But, uh, but, but Jefferson, but Jefferson did, uh, did always support the idea of American industry. However, the way that he would shield the American worker, and this is important, he always saw the American people as an as agricultural people. And he said that if God ever did have a chosen people, it was the farmers. He believed that farmers were shielded from corruption, but that people who lived in cities and worked in factories would be corrupt. And so he wanted to guarantee, and one of the reasons for the Louisiana Purchase, he wanted to guarantee that this would always be an agricultural nation because he felt that farmers were superior or that farmers were at least smarter. But he was a very much sort of, I hate to make the comparison, but that was an idea that you found in Chairman Mao, the idea that, <laughs> that you always wanted to encourage the farmers and oppose these uh, these artificially educated, overly urbane, overly sophisticated city people who were corrupt. But this is this is a very common idea in Western thought, and it was an idea that was very and it's all and obviously it's a very important idea in Chinese thought as well. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a universal kind of idea. But Jefferson, um, but Jefferson did in fact encourage uh, manufacturing. But he, but he felt that you wanted to, that you wanted to, um, that you wanted to uh, always see the, uh, the agricultural person as less corrupt, and so that was that was one of the bases. But there was a certain element of hyperbole, a certain amount of exaggeration, throughout Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, which is where he said that. It was, it's a, it's a book that's filled with hyperbole. He says many things that he doesn't absolutely believe. He's some more literary effect. So we have this, you know, and, and so we have him in effect presenting this, you know, literary idea of himself that people have misinterpreted in terms of his thinking about the economy. So what, what, you know, how did he approach, you know, economic thinking in general? And what, what was he basing it? Well, these were these were ancient ideas. You find these ideas in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. And uh, the word agrarian, actually, as it was used in Jefferson's time, most notably by Thomas Paine, was a system of land redistribution. In fact, it was a kind of a socialistic idea. You took, you took from the rich and redistributed to the poor. And there had been laws of that sort in ancient Rome, which is one of the reasons why Jefferson never used this word agrarian. Thomas Paine did. Thomas Paine believed in a redistribution of wealth, and Jefferson didn't believe in a redistribution of wealth. Jefferson did believe uh, that, um, however, that there was a there was a kind of legitimacy. Now he felt that the question of whether or not property was a natural right that was a, that was a moot question. You will note that the Declaration of Independence says that we have right to life, liberty, and and pursuit of happiness, but the Declaration, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, as well as as the writings of Locke, say life, liberty, and property. Why did Jefferson drop the word property uh, from his Declaration of Independence? And if Jefferson did indeed, as many people think, if Jefferson did indeed have such a strong influence on the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, 
Why then does the French Declaration of the Rights of Man save life, liberty, and property? <laughs> well, because Jefferson wasn't so sure about an inalienable right to property. No, the right to property came uh, from, and I think this was this was somewhat true of Locke too, although Locke, Locke is is not quite clear on on his ideas on property, but but Jefferson Jefferson felt that uh, that you you had the right to property if you used property. That is a use theory. You had to use the property, and how should the property be used? And by this I mean real property or real estate, real property. You you gain the right to property by developing it agriculturally. So people who hunted on property, I'm sorry uh, for my friends here in the state of Pennsylvania who place a great deal of, of value on, on, uh, on hunting, but uh, Jefferson felt that the, French, that the French aristocracy was not really entitled to their property because they set aside land for hunting. And, that, and, so mu- and there was so much poverty in France due to the fact that people set aside property for hunting. And this was part of the divine right of kings, part of the aristocratic prerogative. And he didn't have a great deal of respect for that. Now, to show you how universal he was in his thinking, he also felt the same thing about the Native Americans. They used the land for hunting. And of course, it wasn't true because they they were actually farming communities. They weren't simply running around shooting arrows at deer. The American Indians were an agricultural people. Jefferson, however, would often justify his position about the appropriation of Indian lands in terms of the fact that like those lazy European aristocrats, they used land for hunting. And they needed to be reeducated. They need to be taught. They needed to be reeducated so that they would use them, so that they would become farmers, that they would become yeoman farmers with male-headed households. And that each would have that every that, that the and that they would become a a farming um, uh, civilization after the model of what Jefferson saw as the ideal American yeoman farmer. So that was that was what that was his theory of property. You owned you owned real property because you used it for farming. And people like Marie Antoinette and the Native Americans they really were misusing property because they used it for hunting. I, I want to get to uh, turn back to another uh, aspect of what you were talking about with regard to the farmers and their superiority, because that get, ties into ideas that he had about liberty. And I was wondering if you could perhaps expand a bit upon your examination of of Jefferson's ideas about liberty and how uh, and, and and the ways in which they've been you know interpreted and and, and sometimes misconstrued. Uh, it, uh, in, in some respects by him, but also by people around him and since then. Well, Jefferson said very famously that um, dependent, dependency breeds subservience and supplicates the germ of virtue. If you were dependent on someone, then you sort of, you were sort of like, you were sort of like Leporello in Mozart's opera uh, Don Giovanni. Uh, you were de- if you were dependent, you see, you, then you were part of the servant class and uh, you were an employee. And Jefferson didn't, didn't, this idea that we have today that the government should provide jobs, you know, the idea of jobs in Jeffersonian America was not necessarily a very positive idea. Nobody should have a job. You shouldn't have a job. You should have a farm. You should be an independent small capitalist. 
you should you should be but if you were an independent small capitalist then you would owe nothing to anybody now you could be a blacksmith uh, jefferson had to make room in his philosophy for someone like benjamin franklin or thomas paine who who uh, someone who who had a shop someone that is to say a shop in the sense of a of a workplace a person who who was engaged in small manufacturing as indeed jefferson was and one of the ways of course that you made sure that you could be uh, but you didn't want to have a lot of employees you see one of the ways that jefferson would preserve the the freedom of of people in virginia is that he would never be employing a lot of young a lot of white people in his in his factories jefferson had factories uh, if we call them that in on, on at monticello for example he made his own nails uh, he did small manufacturing, but the factory jobs would take were were, were um, young young African Americans, black adolescents, young kids, uh, boys and girls uh, who worked who worked in his factories and especially in his uh, in what he called his nailery. That is where he made nails, which he tried to make not only for his use at Mont Monticello but for uh, but for export to other plantations as well. This was never a profitable enterprise, um, but but he tried to make it such. So, so he, the way that you would preserve, however, you would preserve the young, the, the, the white youth from this, from the dismal, dark, satanic mills, as his contemporary uh, William Blake called them, by by using only these black kids uh, in, in your in your factory. You wouldn't corrupt. You wouldn't corrupt. Uh, you wouldn't corrupt whites by putting them to work. They were going to be farmers. But if you needed factory labor, well, this this problem was solved. By using these uh, these black adolescents in your in your factory, mm -hmm. so so they so the idea of liberty then uh, was was basically directed at at whites, whether the whether the blacks were going to be free that was something that uh, that is very very complicated. For one thing, Jefferson, although although you wouldn't get any any idea of this from his this in his writings, you get the idea that Jefferson saw black on one extreme and white on the other. But there's pretty good evidence that he recognized uh, gradations of whiteness. He did believe, and you can see this in his writings on, uh, on, on animal breeding, which he cites when he's talking about slavery, that, uh, that, that a certain amount of blacks could be absorbed, absorbed into the white population and would become white. Now, in my own family, for example, my mother looked as if she were Italian. She was fair, fairly, fairly light, fairly white, very white skinned, and white men would sometimes stand up when they, when she was in the segregated South, growing up in the segregated South. One time, a white man stood up and offered her his seat on the bus. Uh, and uh, sometimes, my 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 parents, when they went out in public, they were they were vilified. People would call them names because they thought that my father was a black man with a white woman. Uh, and I, I've got, I have four granddaughters. Two look Italian, and the other two look like uh, Scandinavians. They're, they look like Norwegians. So this idea of of the of the assimilation of black people is something that that Jefferson was well aware of, and there is some evidence in the court cases that he represented that he was more inclined to be sympathetic to black people who were close to or almost white, but. At the same time, he felt that black people couldn't really be free and live together. He was like Malcolm X in that. It was not very much like Martin Luther King, who believed that we could become a united and happy people. Rather, he was like Malcolm X, who believed that there would always be hostility between black and white. But I think when we look at Africa, 
we see that some of the greatest hatreds among our, our black on black. And when we look at Europe, we see that some of the hatreds that exist among Europeans are far greater than those that exist between black and white in the United States. Let us hope that it never gets any worse. But so far, so far, the, the hostility between black and white and the mutual hatreds are not quite as bad as those which we saw in Germany in the 1930s when blue-eyed blondes were shoving blue-eyed blondes into furnaces. It gets to an interesting point that I was thinking throughout your book about how relevant so much of Jefferson remains, not just in terms of the political thinking, but in terms of a lot of his ideas. I'm getting a little ahead of of, of where you present these in the book, but when you engage with science uh, and Jefferson's scientific thinking, you point out the degree to which how it correlates with our scientific thinking today, as well as well as as it did within the contemporary thought of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Well, Jefferson lived at a time when uh, when Isaac Newton was seen as the ultimate in science, and everyone really believed, as as Alexander Pope put it, uh, "Heaven and heaven's laws lay hid in night." Uh, God said, "Let Newton be, and all was light." Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful uh, set of iambic pentameter. But the fact is that by the that, that Jefferson, um, uh, by the time Jefferson died, those scientists were already living. They were they were they were already born. Who are going to find the the uh, anomalies, the inconsistencies uh, in in Isaac Newton? Uh, but but Jefferson lived at a time when people thought that they had solved all the basic problems in physics. Remember, at that time, we still did not we still did not require that that engineers study calculus. Uh, engineers studied Euclidean geometry, geometry and uh, trigonometry, and solid geometry. But you could be an engineer without ever having studied calculus. And uh, and uh, a person coming out, uh, an engineer trained today, trained in those days, uh, would be sort of like a, a college freshman in a science in an engineering uh, department today. Science, science, and the definition of science was quite was quite different as far as medicine is concerned. My gosh, the only people who knew anything about medicine were a few midwives and and maybe maybe some Native Americans. Who knew something about about uh, curing disease, or, um, but but the average doctor didn't realize until until 1900 that they needed that they needed to uh, to wash their hands before performing an operation. So 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 the sciences and technologies of those days simply were not what they are today. Uh, the only person who really had a concept, a very a, a very well developed concept of, of science was Benjamin Franklin. Now, he was truly a genius. He really was a genius. He really, he really had something of a scientific method. He understood something about, about uh, the idea of, 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 of coming up with some sort of a hypothesis, which you then tested under controlled conditions and which you hoped other scientists would be able to replicate. Jefferson talked a lot about his, his heroes, who were uh, Francis Bacon and John Locke. But he didn't. But he didn't really. Uh, he did, and, and Isaac Newton. But he didn't really follow the scientific method that that Bacon that Bacon recommended. Nor did Bacon, for that matter. Jefferson operated as a very traditional, classic Aristotelian, by which I mean, he tried to find a premise, an unchallengeable truth that he held to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And then you would deduce reality from those 
self-evident truths. Now, that's fine as long as we're talking about plane geometry. Certain truths are self-evident. A triangle does have three sides. You're never going to come across a triangle that has four sides. You're never going to find two lines, two parallel lines that meet. All right angles are congruent. Yes, those kinds of truths are self-evident. But that all men are created equal? Well, <laughs> Jefferson took that back. He took that line back by 1780, by 1785. He had retracted that. He took that line back in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia. But where he really took it back was in his a series of brilliant essays of uh, an exchange of letters, which everyone ought to know, uh, an exchange of letters between himself and John Adams, in which he talked about the natural aristocracy. That is, there was a natural aristocracy of virtue and talent, but there also were differences among people. Jefferson did not say all men and women are created equal. He didn't mean anything of the sort. He said all men are created equal, and that was what he meant. But what he meant was that, and that is what people are trying to figure out still. You're not going to find that at Wikipedia or any place else. What Jefferson really meant when he said all men are created equal. What I think he meant, what I think he might have meant, is that all people, every human being, is, is entitled to a modicum of respect. But that's not what he said. He said all men are created equal, by which I think he meant that, he, that, that nobody uh, should, should inherit a position as an aristocrat or as a king. He, that was what I think he meant. I was thinking about uh, uh, your discussion of Jefferson and Francis Bacon in another respect, because what you do in there, you, you didn't mention this, is, is, is how you compare uh, Bacon with another contemporary, Galileo Galilei. And, and I was thinking when you're describing how uh, Jefferson preferred, uh, thought, thought uh, Bacon was a, a, a superior scientist and thinker to Galileo, which is something that I, I don't think there, there are many scientists that would agree with that today. How the degree to which Jefferson might have been looking at Francis Bacon and have seen a 16th, 17th century equivalent to himself, you know, a person who, you know, uh, you know, you know uh, was involved in, in a wide variety of fields, who made all these great contributions, in the sense that, that Bacon was closer to that model of, of Jefferson than, than Galileo was. Well, I, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that before. That, that's an excellent point. Yes, he probably did see uh, Bacon. And that was for, after all, Bacon is one of the, uh, you, you study, you, you are more likely today to study Bacon in an English, uh, in, a, in a British literature course than in a, uh, a course on scientific method. I think Bacon, Bacon, um, Bacon certainly felt that Bacon, Bacon did challenge certain Aristotelian principles, or these, and it's sometimes it's difficult to see the difference between between um, Aristotle and uh, and uh, and Plato because both of them both of them did place a lot of emphasis on on the idea of um, of ideal of, of ideal models. You know, of, that there were there were certain ideal models, whether these were to be found in geometry or where they were to be found. They both they both reverted ultimately to 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 geometry. But um, but I think that um, 
And I think that what, what uh, Bacon was trying to do was to get away from this kind of uh, Euclidean approach to, to knowledge and to say that we ought to, we ought to, uh, assimilate, we ought to acquire evidence. So systematic uh, acquisition of evidence and that we're going to, we will we'll use an inductive method. We'll try to induce from, from our experiment rather than uh, deducing from something that, um, some principle that, um, that, uh, that we inherited from the ancients. And I think, I think Jefferson, I think that was what Jefferson admired about, um, about Bacon. But, but, but in his own method, he tended, he tended uh, very often to he wanted to he wanted to find a first principle, and he usually tried to find a first principle so that he could ret retreat to this um, to this idea to this to this practice of uh, deductive uh, uh, of deductive um, uh, Platonic or Aristotelian uh, logic, rather rather than operating as a uh, in terms of uh, inductive method, which which I think Franklin was more inclined to use. I was thinking about it from a, a, a another perspective as well, and this gets to a, a, a you know a, a broader part of your book, which is your discussion of Jefferson's genius. I, I especially thought it was interesting how you dis the, the the chapter where you describe him as a Renaissance man in the Enlightenment, and, and how basically you're taking this idea of Jefferson, which you know we we still see of this very widely practiced person, this who who seems to exemplify this ideal that we associate with the late middle ages and how it, uh, how it juxtaposes with a very different set of standards in the enlightenment and what that says about Jefferson and, and, and our concept of his genius. Well, yes, by, by the time, uh, by the time Jefferson died, we're, we're finding people, um, uh, they're usually coming from, from, um, not so much out of universities as coming out of, uh, out of the practice of um, of uh, practical engineering, they're coming out of workshops. You know, these people like Benjamin Franklin, who are who are making inventions because they because they're actually uh, they have hand on hands on experience. And these people who are making uh, inventions, for example, Jefferson invented a plow, and so did uh, so did George Washington. But George Washington's plow apparently was more practical than. Uh, than Jefferson's, but of course we're coming now to the age of John Deere too. Uh, there were there were people who were coming out of uh, fields like mining and technology, who are beginning to um, to understand some things about the world. Jefferson thought the world had um, had always been pretty much the same. He was not an evolutionist. He had a very difficult idea with his concept of evolution. He he couldn't accept the idea that. Uh, that meteors fell out of the sky. Um, he he uh, he could only deal with that in a very uh, flippant manner. Uh, when when someone showed him a meteor, uh, he his his very flippant response was, "Okay, well, you say it came down out of the sky, and I asked you then, how did it get up there in the first place?" Chuckle, chuckle, titter, titter. But the fact <laughs> is that that rocks were falling out of the sky, and Jefferson just didn't like that idea, not one bit. Because that was that just wasn't the kind of orderly universe that that he saw. Jefferson on um, Jefferson believed in a god of reason. Now that that wasn't the god that you found in Genesis, and that's not the god that you find in Saint Paul. 
So when Jefferson started trans when Jefferson started going through the Bible to tell us what were the true words of Jesus Christ, he took his scissors, he took he took a, a razor, uh, he took paste, and he cut out all the parts of of, of, of Jesus that they didn't like. And he didn't include Saint Paul. He didn't include the Book of Revelation. He included only what he thought Jesus actually said. Well, how do we know what Jesus said? What is your method, Mr. Jefferson, as a literary scholar? How do you go about deciding which were the actual words of Jefferson and which were those that were inserted by a bunch of Catholics and, and evangelicals? <laughs> which, 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 were, which were the real? Well, he doesn't tell you. He just simply says, I know which were the words of Jefferson, of, of, of Jesus. And the words of Jesus were very much like the words of Socrates. So he, he picks and chooses. He, he did, if, 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 Plato said, if Plato quoted Socrates as saying one thing and Xenophon quoted Socrates as saying something else, well, he just arbitrarily decided that Xenophon's right and Plato was a fool, the father of liars. He would, he, but he wouldn't say why. Or when he came to someone like Phyllis Wheatley and she said she was a lousy poet, he never said why. So he was never very scientific in that sense, in that he felt that he had to give a, um, uh, a, 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 that he felt he had to give systematic introduction of evidence in support of his of his ideas, certain things were just self-evident. Well, we, we can all make that mistake. And it was uh, it, it, that's something that I I, I thought was yeah, sorry, collecting my thoughts here. <laughs> uh, it, it's something that it, it's you, you see throughout a lot of his thinking how he he draws these conclusions, and and that's one of the things that you do throughout your book is you show how he does it uh, in terms of science in, in, in terms of these various fields, but you also see it as well in terms of his, his, his ideas about race, which as you point out, he draws not just upon observation and, and, and first principles, but he also, you know, turns to what amounts to, uh, the, 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 scientific thinking of his time. He talks about animal husbandry and, and his, and he takes those ideas and applies them to inform that in sometimes in very arbitrary fashion. Well, yeah, uh, he did. He he. Uh, to to give him credit, he said he said. Well, he simply suspected that the African people were were inferior. He he said. Well, well, I won't condemn the whole race on the basis of what is just a suspicion, although my suspicion is that they are inferior. But he said we'll 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 wait for additional evidence. Uh, of course, by this time, uh, we have the beginnings. That is the the seed roots of American law. Uh, of, of, of modern anthropology, because there were travelers in Africa who were beginning to to make some reports about the kind of the kinds of of, um, of cultures and civilizations that existed in Africa. Now, what is very interesting about Jefferson is that he was involved in the translation of the of the um, of the work of Constantin Volney, and Volney what uh, was convinced that the African people had indeed been the uh, founders of Egyptian civilization and that the African people had fallen from their ancient exalted state. When Jefferson translated uh, uh, Volney, he did not excise those portions, although you will find some translations of Volney that do excise those portions. One of the things I would say, my French is pretty lousy, but one of the things that I've discovered is that when, when, when Americans tend to look at a lot of French writers, uh, they, they will look at translations that were made in the 19th century that were made by American racists, and they will overlook 
the what the actual original French words said. This is true, particularly true of the of of, of Gobineau when people when Americans read Gobineau, nineteenth century French racist. He was a racist, but his but his thinking was much more complicated than most Americans um, are aware of because they work with these nineteenth century translations that were made by American racists. Even when you go to Wikisource, you'll find that some of those chapters have been left out. Uh, but there is, but there is a black scholar who published in one of the black journals an article about that. I won't go into that right now. But Jefferson, Jefferson, when he uh, when he translated Bolney, he seemed to be aware that civilizations rise and fall, and that there was a time in the past when Africans uh, were a more exalted civilization than we knew today. In his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, uh, there's uh, one of the subjects that we, we haven't touched on yet, and I, I wanted to uh, address it, is you have a, a discussion of the role of women in Jefferson's life and how that also uh, connects to his thinking about women. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that a little bit and, and, and how, you know, how those, what ideas he had about women and how they may have informed or been informed by his uh, exclusion of them from his consideration of rights and 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 and, and uh, abilities. Well, on on the spectrum of his contemporaries, I like to judge Jefferson. And when we talk about race, or when we talk about about gender, I guess that's the term we use today, gender. Uh, when we talk about when we talk about Jefferson in connection with race and gender, we uh, we have to judge him by by his by how he stood with respect to his contemporaries. Now, some of his contemporaries were, were, much, more, were much more progressive than he was. For example, um, uh, Aaron Burr uh, and um, William Godwin were people who, uh, who, who tended to view women uh, as having a great deal more uh, potential and much higher accomplishment than Jefferson did. Je- on the other hand, Jefferson, Jefferson uh, preferred the company of intelligent women. He liked intelligent women. He liked accomplished women. And those are the kinds of women he had to have around him. Even with respect to Sally Hemings, who was the black woman who was his mistress, Jefferson, she must have, she must have um, had some elements of gentility that the average ordinary white dirt farmer didn't have. After all, she spent her adolescence in Paris. She must have known some, she must have known at least a little bit of French. I don't know if she was ever literate. But, but, but certainly the women who Jefferson surrounded himself with and he prefer, who he preferred as his companions were, were women who were, who were literate and intelligent, as, for example, his daughter Martha and his wife who played, who played musical instruments, and she was literate, too. We know very little about her. Uh, but uh, but Jefferson, Jefferson uh, had a correspondence, as many people are, are fond of recalling, with Abigail Adams, who, who lost patience with him eventually. She simply stopped communicating with him. Uh, Jefferson, uh, and the reason for that was that Jefferson, at the time of Shays's rebellion, Shays led a rebellion in Massachusetts, which which uh, represented the white the rights of the farmers as opposed to those of the bankers of the banking class and the commercial class in Boston. Uh, Jefferson, of course, sided with the farmers, and so did and and of course the the, the Adamses too thought of themselves as as agricultural people. However. They they felt that if Jefferson, that if the farmers in in Virginia had risen up, 
then Jefferson's attitude towards the Shays Rebellion might have been a little different <laughs> when, when it was the farmers in Massachusetts. And Jefferson said that, that the, uh, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of patriots and martyrs. That is the manure which nourishes the, uh, liber liber the soil of liberty, etc. That sorts of statements. Well, um, well, Abigail Adams lost patience with him over that, but also in that brutal. You think that this, you think that this presidential election uh, this year is brutal? It hasn't got as brutal as it's going to become. Wait till, wait till the impeachment trial begins. Oh, we're going to see all, a whole lot of brutality at that point. But, uh, and it's going to be directed at everybody, um, not, just at, not just at the Republicans, but it's going to be directed at the Obama administration as well. It's going to be very brutal. But when that, when that takes place, it will, be, it, will be, it will probably be as brutal as the election of 1800. And that was the point at which these accusations about Jefferson's relationship to Sally Hemings uh, his his slave his enslaved woman uh, first emerged, and uh, and I think Abigail just had a lot of difficulty with the idea of Jefferson uh, having. She was, after all, a Puritan, you know, and this idea that you have this decadent Virginia aristocracy of which Jefferson was a part, uh, which uh, which kept which kept um, slave women as their as their mistresses. That was that was something that Abigail had a very difficult time with. Uh, although we don't have a single letter in which she says that, but, but we can infer that from from the letters she wrote. So Jefferson, 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 uh, Jefferson uh, lived at the time of Mozart. Um, he lived at the time of the Mozart operas. He sat in the opera, uh, in um, and I made a point of this in, in my book. I made a point of it. he sat in the opera, and Mozart uh, set a set to music a trilogy by the uh, French. Um, uh, 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 a dramatist, uh, Beaumarchais, which was which is the basis of three operas, the two operas that we still know today, *The Marriage of Figaro* and *The Barber of Seville*. And in these two, in these two operas, we see the the, the figure of Figaro, who as who is uh, who represents the, the the rise of a of a class of, of the lower classes, who nonetheless are protesting against the aristocracy. But what we also see in these opera is a challenge to the, to, the, to the morality, this aristocratic morality, which victimized women of the lower classes. And that, that was one of the very important issues. But what we also see, if you read this trilogy by Beaumarchais, what you see is that Beaumarchais offers a, uh, and some ideas for the humanization of males that are not present in Jefferson's thinking a way of getting away from this double standard of sexual morality and in the final of these of these uh, of the, of these uh, of these plays which jefferson may have known la mere coupable which was which was not made into an opera we don't that well it was made into an opera very late in the 20th century nobody ever listens to it but but what what you're seeing here is that is that uh, the, the, the the figure the character the character of the count is ultimately humanized because he has to deal with the with the with the issue of his wife's infidelity. This is not something that Jefferson I don't think Jefferson ever reached that point. And I think I think that Jefferson never 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 could grasp this idea that women that women belonged in the councils of men. Why? Because if women when men were together, then there was the the possibility of promiscuous mingling. Now, this word promiscuous has a lengthy history in English. If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, you will find that, it, that it's ambiguous at the time that Jefferson wrote. 
promiscuous can simply mean um, uh, indiscriminate mixing, but it can also have a sexual connotation. This idea of promiscuous mingling was one of the reasons why women did not belong in Congress and did not belong in government. And the other, the other idea, as he said, as he didn't, he would never have dared say this to Abigail, but he did say this to, to uh, uh, one of the Schuylers he wrote to, um, uh, he said, he said, well, Angelina Schuyler, he wrote to her and he said, well, women, women, the, the fact that, that, that politics does not belong in the tenders, tender woman, bosoms of women. Uh, that, that, of course, is not the kind of idea that you would find in some of his contemporaries. Who, who certainly believed that women were equal in that sense as well. Now, discussing all these ideas is enormously uh, useful in terms of understanding Jefferson's thinking, which has had this enormous influence upon uh, American and even world thought. But you also show how it plays out in terms of Jefferson's national curse, in particular, that period of time from the, uh, from the early 1790s uh, through uh, his presidency and into his post-presidency. And I was wondering if you could uh, help us to understand how these ideas played out to the degree to which uh, Jefferson practiced what he preached and the degree to which he sometimes, when confronted with practical reality, maybe uh, you know, showed the, the limits of, of, of some of his ideas. Well, we've, we've seen that in our time. We've seen that in the, in the um, presidency of um, Barack Obama, and we've seen it in the presidents of um, of Trump as well. Uh, people people have unrealistic expectations of, of the president, the presidents, uh, and I think and I think that uh, these people who are very critical of um, of Bernie Sanders or of um, or of uh, Elizabeth Warren, any time they make they make a, a statement or state, are seen to be uh, or withdrawing from some from statement they've made earlier. You know, the first thing you have to do before you're going to be elected, although elections in those days were elections conducted entirely in the electoral college, um, but 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 people expect uh, first first before you can govern, you have to first of all get elected, and uh, and many people are very are very critical. Uh, when 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 a president is not able to follow uh, the very letter of what they of what they seem to have represented prior to becoming president, Jefferson uh, Jefferson was a very pragmatic guy, and I think you have to be if you're going to govern. But uh, but and I think that uh, I think there are some principles on which you have to to hold firm, and I think you have a person like like Lincoln who who was also very practical. There are people who feel Lincoln was a hypocrite because he didn't free the slave, because he didn't send, uh, because he didn't send General Sherman down into the South to liberate the slaves the the, the day he was inaugurated, and and who call Lincoln a hypocrite for that reason. Uh, and there are people who um, who call Jefferson a hypocrite because he wasn't able to to follow all the policies that seemed to be associated with his um, with his preachments when he came into office. Now, as a matter of fact, Jefferson Jefferson is to be faulted for his shift on the on the um, on this expansion of slavery into the territories. At one point, he felt that the republic could not continue to sustain slavery, but he changed his mind on that. Uh, so that while Lincoln's uh, presidency, Lincoln's life was a was was a, was a process of becoming more and more liberal with respect to slavery, Jefferson was becoming more and more. Uh, uh, the, the conservative with respect to slavery, but but on the other hand, the fact that Jefferson made compromises 
um, with respect to his economic policies, that is, uh, appointing uh, Albert Gallatin as his, as his Secretary of the Treasury, when Gallatin was Hamilton on steroids, um, would, 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 would lead one to think that, that perhaps he was inconsistent. Well, many people claim to have read. There is no historian, no graduate student in any history department in the United States of America today or in England, who would, or in Germany or in France, uh, no, no graduate student would, would confess to not having read Henry Adams' uh, history of the Jefferson administration. But if they had actually read him, they would see that Henry Adams is very critical of Jefferson, or not so much critical, but Henry, he, he got in quite a few digs. Uh, Henry Adams did not forget the conflicts between Jefferson and his, um, and his ancestors. Uh, both John Adams and John Quincy Adams. He didn't forget that, and he got in his digs. And Jefferson, he said, became uh, in, in a, he became more Hamiltonian than the Hamiltonians themselves when he was actually in office. He did use executive authority. He was the father of executive of executive orders. Uh, people who don't like executive orders ought to take a look at Jefferson. Uh, and he and he did and he did depart from this Adam Smith economics that he was supposed to have uh, so thoroughly supported. The one great inconsistency in Jefferson, of course, was the was the um, great enthusiasm with which he could advocate the use of violence, the advocate the way in which he could beat the drums of war without ever having actually served in the Virginia militia. And there were and there were among his contemporaries. Uh, certain persons who were who were who never forgave him for that. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on a book uh, which is inspired um, by my reading of the Grimm brothers. I, I'm I'm kind of interested in German history and culture, and I've been reading a lot of um, of uh, I read a lot of historical novels for pleasure, and mostly they're set in the Middle Ages. I'm interested in the evolution of um, of certain of certain um, ideas in the history of of, of sexuality, and uh, in particular in the in the history of um, of heterosexual attitudes, the uh, and the in particularly in the in the relationship between brothers and sisters throughout throughout um, history from the time of uh, Cain and Abel to the time of um, Richard Wagner. So I've so I've been uh, reading Wagner. I've been reading. Uh, <laughs> The Bible in, in translation, and I've been reading, I've been reading and rereading various versions of uh, the Grimm fairy tales, um, uh, Hansel and Gretel, um, his uh, story called Brutigen and Schwesterchen, and another one called uh, called the the little fish and the um, and uh, the, 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 the little fish and the, um, the little the little. Um, the fish and fox. I think I remember what the other animal was. Right, this all the top of my head. But uh, but these but these animals, these brothers and sisters, they get translated, transformed into animals. Uh, uh, they they undergo they undergo progression from childhood to adulthood. In Hansel and Gretel, Gretel starts off as a little sister, but but by the time of the uh, by the time they're in the witch's house, it's she who's taking the. Uh, She's who's taking the initiative. It's she's who, the one who's doing the thinking. He's, he's the one who's controlling the action. And all of these ideas are, are very interesting to me. And so uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very, it's, it'll, be, it'll be a very thorough book uh, uh, covering um, a great deal of, of um, European history, um, 
unfor I don't have a novel to keep, which is um, which is um, uh, something that makes me sad. I do I do know uh, German fairly well, but not uh, uh, French after a fashion. And um, but I don't. Um, I, I I had two years of high school Latin, which amount to nothing. And it would be it would be better for me. I'd be happier if I knew if I knew uh, languages about lot better than I do, but I'll just have to work with what I've got. Well, that sounds like a really fun project. I, I, I wish you the best with it. Well, thanks. Well, Wilson Moses, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, you too.